Welcome to this installment of Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Simon Nantin, and I am an instructor at Vancouver Area Universities, namely UBC, Simon Fraser University, and Kwantlen Polytechnic University. For today's podcast interview, I have invited Russell Fields, author of the book A Night at the Gardens, Class, Gender, and Respectability in 1930s Toronto, published by the University of Toronto Press. Russell Field is an associate professor in the Faculty of Kinesiology and Recreation Management at the University of Manitoba. His research explores sport and social justice with current projects focusing on global sporting events as sites of resistance and protest, as well as the concept of people's history. In addition to A Night at the Gardens, he is the co-author with Simon Darnell and Bruce Kidd of The History and Politics of Sport for Development, activists, ideologues, and reformers. He is the editor of Playing for Change, The Continuing Struggle for Sport and Recreation. And he is currently at work on an anthology about protest and resistance at the Winter Olympics. He also has a research interest in film and other visual representations of sport. And since 2008, he is the founder and executive director of the Canadian Sport Film Festival. Russell, it is a real pleasure to have you as my guest today. Great to be here, Simone. Thank you for inviting me. Well, in your book, you tell us that the construction of Maple Leaf Gardens was the last and wave of National Hockey League teams building new arenas in the 1920s and 30s. Could you tell us a bit about the place of spectator sports in the North American urban landscape and why there was such a wave of new hockey arenas in this era? And maybe you could also tell us what this means about Toronto in the 1920s and 30s. Certainly, I think the, uh, I think the lens needs to be both narrower and broader. Uh, if I could put it that way, I think uh, there's a broader landscape of sports spaces beyond uh, hockey arenas. Uh, that are created in this uh, built built in this era, from uh, which have something to do in the particular case of specific sports with their growing popularity uh, and their growth as professional commercial enterprises. So that in professional baseball, particularly in the United States, uh, as leagues expand in the years just before. Uh, the uh, First World War, you get new stadiums, some of which are still uh, considered iconic today, like Fenway Park in Boston uh, and Wrigley Field in Chicago. Uh, and you get further ones after that, like Yankee Stadium, uh, built in uh, 1923. But moreover, as I talk about broadening the lens, I think it's interesting to think beyond sport and think about the 1920s and into the early 1930s before the Great Depression has is, is truly taken hold and construction ends, uh, to think of that era as a, a moment in time where people are becoming more broadly consumers of public entertainment uh, and that there are more entertainment options available. The stereotypical sort of boom period of, of the Roaring Twenties is very much a story 
almost exclusively of the second half of the 1920s economically. But you get the rise uh, of not only uh, new sports spaces uh, for baseball uh, and for hockey, which I promise I'll get to since that was the origin of your question, um, but you also get uh, the growth of, uh, uh, of theaters. Uh, and then in the late 1920s, 1927, 28, with the, the invention of uh, synchronized sound between film uh, and audio, you get talking moving pictures. Uh, and you get the, an explosion in major urban centers of movie theaters as well. And and I argue in the book that we need to think about uh, spectators of sport as consumers of entertainment who had a wealth of options available to them, including, uh, including in, in the case that I looked at, including professional hockey. But, they, but there are all sorts of other spectator spaces. Uh, and in an earlier study, I looked at uh, Madison Square Garden in New York, which the new one, which was built in 1925, uh, is moved from the physical Madison Square Garden uh, at uh, at 23rd Street up into up onto Eighth Avenue, adjacent to the Times Square area, so that sport and spectatorship are being located adjacent to entertainment spaces on uh, Times Square and Broadway. Um, and Madison Square Garden, to get back to the question you did ask about hockey spaces, I, I argue in the book is really uh, at the sort of vanguard of this brief period of uh, construction of uh, new arenas in the National Hockey League. There had been arenas constructed earlier, most uh, prior to that, that were replacing an earlier generation, much like the earlier one in Toronto that Maple Leaf Gardens replaced. And the Montreal Forum built in 1924 is one of those um moments in time but it's in 1924-1925 as the NHL uh, uh, consolidates its uh, uh, oligopoly power over uh, the most elite levels of professional hockey in North America and defeats begins the process of defeating its Canadian competitors by bringing U.S. enterprises into its business and those U.S. enterprises to be successful build new stadia uh, so you get Madison Square Garden in New York. You get uh, what becomes the Boston Garden in Boston, Chicago Stadium, the Detroit Olympia, uh, Duquesne Gardens in Pittsburgh is more of a renovated stadium. But you get this rapid expansion, which brings along significant economic benefits um, to the uh, teams uh, that are building them. And in response, I argue in the book, uh, the managing partner and directors of, uh, of the Toronto Maple Leafs Hockey Club decide to embark upon building their own arena. Um, and that's, that's why I frame it as very much the end of a period. But I, I said the lens needed to be broader, by which I meant moving beyond hockey, moving beyond sport. But I think the lens can be narrower to, to get to the last part of your question about Toronto, is that this is a moment, a decade in time, when Toronto is expanding and consumer entertainments are, are growing. You get new movie theaters and new theaters proper built in this period. The Royal Alex Theatre in Toronto had already been built, but what is now the Elgin and Winter Garden, uh, Shea's Hippodrome, emerge at this time. Uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs baseball team builds a new stadium uh, down on the near the waterfront in Toronto um, five years before Maple Leaf Gardens is built. Maple Leaf Stadium opens, uh, modeled uh, on Yankee Stadium in New York. Um, and there are other kinds of spaces of uh, public entertainment, the Sunnyside Bathing Pavilion, 
the Royal Ontario Museum is is renovated, has its 1930s renovation in this period. It is a period not just in Toronto, but for this particular case within Toronto of the growth of entertainment options available to consumers and sport gets wrapped up within that. So my major focus of your research is to study spectators, the ones who attend hockey games. Uh, I wonder if you can tell us what we can learn by studying spectators. And I would also sort of imagine that it'd be very sort of difficult to to find out who those spectators are. So could you also maybe tell us a bit about uh, the research materials that you used to sort of discover who those spectators were? Sure. The first part of that question of what what to learn from studying spectators, um, there's a couple of ways I come at that question, one of which is um, a lot of my, uh, but by no means all, but a lot of my the colleagues in my field studying uh, the history, the sociology, the anthropology of sport have come to their uh, their interest in a kind of sociocultural exploration of the significance of sport because of their own participation often as, as elite athletes or as, as high-performance athletes. Um, I came to my project this is very much an audio focus, but I'm happy to reveal the, the, the not particularly athletic physique that's, uh, that's speaking, that I came to my focus very much uh, as a fan, as a, who wanted to understand more from that perspective. So for me, it was a kind of underrepresented perspective. By, by no means has no historian talked about this. Historians have explored spectatorship. The other way I'd come out, out of this is that I think studying spectators is an entry point into understanding the significance, the popularity and uh, of understanding professional sport as a commercial business. Uh, and it has, it is even more significant 90 years after Maple Leaf Gardens opened than it is, than even it was then. Um, if for no other reason than commercial sport doesn't exist without the spectators. Um, they are core Fandom and spectatorship, which I don't think are entirely the same thing, but both of them are core to the financial viability of these enterprises. That being said, to get to the second part of your of your question, figuring out just who they were and what they got out of the experience is, as you pointed out, not wasn't necessarily all that straightforward or easy. Um, they uh, spectators don't tend to write a lot of diaries and have them stored in archives. Uh, it would be a lot easier if they did. Um, so I came at this from uh, really four perspectives, I'm going to say. Uh, maybe three. Uh, I used uh, contemporary newspaper accounts uh, to, as an entry point. Uh, and there were a number of... Uh, in 1930s Toronto, there were four daily newspapers. Uh, there were a couple more sort of kind of scandal sheets that... Um, that also talked about spectators and, and um, well aware that those media accounts were very much constructing a narrative around spectators. They weren't necessarily reflecting the experience of being a spectator. Uh, but I did try to get to that. Um, and really what I tried to do in the book was answer three questions. How did the building, why was the building built in the way it was, Maple Leaf Gardens? To Was it trying to anticipate a particular spectator? Uh, for to answer that question, I used a lot of archival material around the construction of Maple Leaf Gardens. Uh, the second question, um, after I tried to address how the building anticipated them, was who actually went to games. 
and for that, I was supremely lucky in one of those needle in a haystack moments that not enough historians have. Um, but we all celebrate after we have them. Um, I was speak. this is years ago, uh, now years ago. Uh, so I don't know if the staff people are still the same, but, uh, I was speaking to staff people who worked with, uh, the Maple Leafs hockey club and for Maple Leafs sport and entertainment, the, the conglomerate that owns, uh, the hockey team and, um, who were working at what was, uh, the arena that replaced Maple Leaf Gardens. It's still the arena that the team uses. It's, it's got a different corporate name than it did then. Um, and someone told me, uh, I used to work at, this is their voice, not mine. I used to work at Maple Leaf Gardens, uh, in the ticket office, uh, as we were moving out of the gardens. I'm not sure it's when they're moving out or earlier. I found these old ledger books. They looked interesting. I brought them with me, um, and invited me down, uh, to have a look at them. Uh, they were the kind of the aha moment that many historians wish we could have more often. Um, what they were was they were taken from the first three seasons at Maple Leaf Gardens. And for each season, um, they were essentially the season ticket holder list. The way season's tickets worked in 1931 is different than the way they work in 2023. And I'm not sure that that minutia is all that interesting, though I am happy to go to talk about it more. But essentially what these books were, were free, one for each of the first three seasons that Maple Leaf Gardens was opened. I used the third of the three, so the one for the 1933-34 season, NHL season, which would have been the fall of 1933 and the winter of 1934. Um, I used that one uh, because it was the, the only one of the three that wasn't handwritten. It was typed so I could read it uh, with some degree of confidence in what I was reading. Uh, and it was the one furthest removed from the opening of the of the arena. So I'd hoped it had the that the newness had worn off enough that the people who were there would have some kind of greater authenticity as spectators. So I think, I think that's dubious, uh, even as I say it, but, um, it was the furthest removed from the kind of the, the glare of the building opening. And what the, the, what it did was the book did was give me the people's names, uh, their address, uh, where they sat in the building. I then used what the then city directory at the time which at the time in the 1930s would list what occupation anyone who was, not everyone in the city was listed in the directory, but those who were had their occupation and place of work listed. And then essentially I cross-referenced the two. Um, not everyone was captured, but a significant number were. Uh, and then I used the census from 1931 to get a sense of income data. And essentially I've got, I created sort of an, uh, an economic slash occupational profile of uh, of a of a significant portion of the crowd, about twenty five percent of the crowd, on any given night uh, of who was there. That answered my sec. Tried to begin to address my second question of who went to games, uh, and the third piece of evidence I used uh, was around uh, the last question I wanted to ask, which is what was the experience of being a spectator in this new building? How did people experience it? And for that, uh, I conducted uh, oral history interviews. Uh, with 21 people who'd been spectators of one form or another in the 1930s. And I say one form or another, 
because some were spectators, uh, some were worked uh, as staff at Maple Leaf Gardens, some were players on the team in the 1930s. So uh, a variety of people. Um, uh, and uh, <laughs> these are very long answers to your question, Simone. Uh, but uh, those are the three types of uh, evidence I tried to use to get at uh, answering uh, who spectators were and what their experience of being a spectator was. So the uh, Maple Leaf Gardens will open in 1931. Uh, Colin Smith, of course, figures very prominently in, in that history, in the opening. And in your book title, uh, there are three main analytical lenses that you focus on. You focus on sort of class, gender, and respectability. And I think I would like to start with the third one, which I find you know quite intriguing and maybe a little uncommon in historical research. So in the context of Maple Leaf Gardens, and especially perhaps sort of Con Smith and some of the other uh, people associated with, with the gardens, could you sort of tell us what that term respectability meant? Sure. Con Smythe is an interesting character, um, and other people uh, have written uh, his biography. This book is not an attempt to write his biography, though he is, by the nature of the building and his significance in its construction, he's a character in the book, to be sure. And I mention him uh, because I think it connects to respectability. Um, he's a, he was a, something of a self-made man who believed very strongly in uh, notions of individualism and pulling oneself up by one's bootstraps uh, and, uh, and achieving. Um, he was also a businessman uh, and a successful one at that. Um, and for him, I argue in the book, building Maple Leaf Gardens uh, was not solely a kind of uh, a project of civic responsibility, which he does frame it as that. Uh, but I think that's a framing for public consumption rather than uh, a genuine kind of reasoning behind it. Um, he builds Maple Leaf Gardens, or at least he gets investors to back him to build Maple Leaf Gardens, and he works... Uh, uh, a labor force almost literally to the bone and, uh, and, uh, and pays them in uh, a certain percentage of their wages in Maple Leaf Garden stock, which at the time are worthless. They turned out not to be worthless, but no one would know that at the time. Um, and so on the backs of both his investors and his labor, he gets a building uh, built. They begin construction on June 1st and the building opens on November 12th, all of the same year. Um, and it's a building very much intended to be profitable. That is his ultimate motive. And for Smythe, profitability comes from uh, portraying respectability. So in, in terms of this uh, of, of a hockey arena, he is part, he's, he's not necessarily in the vanguard of this, but he is part of a group of entrepreneurs uh, running commercial sport activities enterprises trying to profit from them by making them as respectable as possible. Um, and, uh, and he does that in particular ways. And while you've singled out one word from the three in the subtitle of the book, um, the other two are just as important. So that respectability for him comes at a particular intersection of class and gender uh, that comes from a sense of uh, these being sites of uh, not only of the consumption of entertainment, but people's public display of that consumption. Um, so respectability comes in the form uh, of how one behaves when in the building, of where one sits 
and how one is perceived by others when they're in that space and in a public world, how one comports oneself, uh, how one um, uh, dresses, though there were Maple Leaf Gardens didn't change uh, standards of attire, but uh, from the 1930s, but it very much uh, capitalized upon them in the same way that there were guidelines about where would one could and couldn't smoke, for example. And there's some very interesting historical research on uh, smoking and socialization uh, in the interwar years. And Maple Leaf Gardens becomes part of that, that you would smoke in a certain place, but not in others because it was considered uh, potentially uh, unrespectable. So all of this, the pursuit of respectability, trying to make hockey spectatorship more respectable than it had was perceived to be in its previous uh, homes in pre in earlier arenas that weren't uh, as large, that didn't have seating that was as comfortable in some sections, not all, um, and that uh, and that where people were perceived to be better dressed and better behaved was all of those were elements of respectability. All of those, um, that respectability came uh, with the aura or the potential of profitability. Uh, for Smythe, that's what uh, respectability really meant. Very good. And uh, you also sort of mentioned, you know, it's often mentioned about feminine respectability in particular. So I wonder if you could also start sharing a bit about the gender element of uh, the uh, the design of Maple Leaf Gardens. Um, what sort of uh, findings uh, could you share with us? Sure, because, yes, in the book, uh, I very much connect notions of respectability around um, the building of Maple Leaf Gardens to notions of feminine respectability. And in some sense, that's that's part of the project that Smythe and, again, others, Charles Adams in Boston and building the Boston Garden was very much embarking on a similar project. Um, feminine respectability, or in Smythe's case, he would have used very different language. He often used the phrase, um, and it's mentioned in the book a lot, uh, um, that he wanted to build an arena that people were proud to take their wives and girlfriends to, uh, which is, a re for me at least, a revealing phrase, uh, outside of the fact that it, uh, the, the kind of heterosexuality that, that over, over uh, arches that is very much a 21st kind of, 21st century kind of parsing of, Smythe's language. But for Smythe, Maple Leaf Gardens would be a respectable place if people, is the phrase he used, uh, but he really meant men, uh, were happy to take their wives and girlfriends to. Um, that has some connotations about who is welcome in the building because it doesn't, it's different than saying, I want a place that women are comfortable coming to. It says, I want to create a place that men are comfortable bringing uh, their wives and girlfriends to. So the, there was a belief that. Um, that if uh, a place much like a much like the theaters of the era were comfortable for women, that they would be more respectable, um, and that begins before the building is even built. Smythe uh, and his backers uh, create what I've called a prospectus that um, that was widely distributed, uh, that had financial statements that tried to raise funds for the arena project uh, from the smallest donors in the public to significant backers. And inside, uh, Loose Goose, uh, who was a, a local cartoonist for uh, for one of the local daily newspapers, drew a series of cartoons. And one of them uh, that I focus on in the book is specifically a cartoon of women listening to the games, listening to hockey games on the radio, hearing about the new arena, 
and saying, now we can go to the games. The, the, the arena is being built for us. Tapping into that kind of notion of feminine respectability and yet not necessarily ever crafting an arena for, um, for women in particular. Uh, so, for example, at the most uh, basic uh, level of human needs, there were far more uh, washroom spaces available for men than there were for women, for example. Um, I think lots of women would argue that that uh, imbalance persists at modern uh, arenas and other spaces of, uh, of consuming sport. Um, so that's sort of the building of the building, even in the operation of the building. Um, uh, the staffing of the building included both men and women, um, but in very gendered ways, as the former staff people I talked to recalled. Um, concession stands where food nourishment was sold, almost exclusively staffed by women. Um, in the higher reaches of the arena and the upper tiers where it was perceived uh, that spectators were more likely to be uh, working class or middle class, and there were preconceptions about masculine behavior in those spaces. The ushers in those spaces were far more likely to be men in the more expensive seats of the arena where comfort was on offer. Um, the ushers were more likely to be female. So even in the operation of the building, you get notions of respectability uh, explicitly tied into gender. You bring up a good point about the uh, the working class, uh, the tickets are sold or the, the working class patrons would often sort of be in the, the upper levels, the upper tiers. Uh, could you tell us a bit more about how class figures into Maple Leaf Gardens? Yeah, part of, I'm hesitating there because part of the challenges, and you asked me earlier about the evidence that I used on which to, where did I find research material on which to talk about this? Um, and the collection of material I used to think about who was present in the building uh, was exclusively data about ticket subscribers, those people. And as I said, they're, it's not the same as being a season ticket holder today, but there's still, there was still a financial commitment that had to be made. It's much smaller than in 2023, uh, but it was still a financial commitment that had to be made. Um, so what I found through that, set of information was that the um, the hockey-going crowd among ticket subscribers was overwhelmingly middle class or, or some more elite members of society, but that, and, and occupational and economic, uh, and in occupation income are by no means uh, the only markers of class. Um, but occupation and, inc and income changed and in case of income increased as one got closer to the ice surface. So they were middle class, but there were still gradations within the, the arena uh, among ticket subscribers. Uh, all of which is to say, I don't think that members of the working class were absent from the building, uh, though in the 1930s, uh, that would have been harder and harder to do. Um, but there's lots of evidence of other events at Maple Leaf Gardens that suggests uh, that even in the midst of the Great Depression, people were still finding a certain amount of um, disposable income to go to games. And there were lots of different promotions that Smythe and others ran uh, in terms of ticket promotions to try to get crowds in. The argument I make in the book or the deduction I make in the book, I guess, is that um, 
members of the working class who were there were more likely to be buying single game tickets than they were to be subscribing to a block of seats over a period of time. When I read through your, your book, there is one sort of group that uh, doesn't figure very prominently, and those are sort of children. Uh, I mean, for me, growing up, I idolized, you know, sports heroes. And of course, that continues today with many youth today. And yet they don't figure very sort of prominently in uh, in in the story when the, in the book of uh, Maple Leaf Gardens. Could you sort of tell us about how uh, uh, children play a role uh, in the gardens? Children do and don't figure prominently in the book. Um and sometimes in unexpected ways. One of the reasons they may not figure prominently in, in the story is that Maple Leaf games uh, in that era, in the 1930s, typically started at 8.30 uh, p.m. Not necessarily a time you might take one's child, you might take your child to a game. Um, most games started at 8.30, uh, and they did that to, to circle back just briefly, because hockey spectating was part of a broader sense of what consuming entertainment was in that era. So the games were scheduled. Games are scheduled today largely to, almost um, exclusively, to get television audiences. The game, that was not a consideration in the 1930s, obviously. And games were scheduled to fit into what the perception of a social evening out would be. So the games were scheduled at 8.30 so that people adults often uh in in couples or in social groupings would go out for dinner were expected that they would go out for dinner beforehand so it was not um so it was one of the reasons children don't figure in the narrative is that um uh is that they uh the games in some sense were scheduled to exclude them and the very kind of social setting that the games were trying to capitalize on wasn't a child focused moment anyways and yet, as I say, I think there are ways children do figure into the book. One of them is, and I, this is mentioned uh, not in huge detail, but briefly in the book, is that um, one uh, game per year uh, was called Young Canada Night, um, which we didn't, we haven't talked much about Smythe, but one of the other things about to know about Con Smythe uh, was that he was uh, an uber patriot. Um, uh, served in the Canadian military in both the First and Second World War. Uh, his standing as as a major in the Second World War was significant, both to his sense of self, to how he presented uh, Maple Leaf games, uh, to, how he, uh, to how he wanted to be remembered. So that the evening each year to celebrate um, young people attending was tied into patriotism. But it was a game once a year, um, where children uh, essentially got in if they were accompanied by an adult. Uh, and a handful of the people I interviewed for the book attended as um, attended a Young Canada Night uh, in the 1930s and that they recall doing that. What's also interesting, and when I say that children are there but in the, in the analysis and in the story, but not necessarily present, is that almost everyone I interviewed uh, with the exception of, I'm trying to think, one concessionaire, the person who was a player, almost everyone I interviewed went to Maple Leaf Gardens in the 1930s as a child. Um, I interviewed them 60, 65, 70 years later. Uh, it was almost inevitable, given the time lapse between the period I was thinking about and the moment in time when I got to speak to these people, um, 
that they, many of them were children. Uh, some of them were young adults and remember going there on dates uh, so that it was social in that particular kind of way. But while children are largely absent from the story, there are lots of anecdotes of children being present, but they were by no means, as you, as you note, um, the audience that was being catered to. And finally, you end the book with the late 1990s. The final NHL game at the Gardens would be played on February 13th, 1999. So I wonder if you could sort of tell us uh, how the Canadian public at that time reflected on the origins of Maple Leaf Gardens. Were there any sort of surprises in the way that they look back on it? I think the biggest surprise, I, but <laughs> I think the biggest narrative, whether it, I, I don't know if I'd characterize it as a surprise, was that Maple Leaf Gardens in 1931 opened to great fanfare uh, locally in Toronto and and nationally, I would argue, um, and uh, as a kind of modern iteration of what a hockey arena could offer spectators. It replaced an earlier uh, building that had been built in 1912 in Toronto uh, called Arena Gardens or the Mutual Street Arena that had a single tier of seating uh, that had no kind of sense of creature comforts that was not intended to cater to the spectator at all. And in fact, offered, talked as much at its opening, the publicity around its opening talked as much about public skating opportunities on the surface itself uh, as it did about going to see events there. Um, by the time Maple Leaf Gardens is opening, the idea that um, in 1931 that you would use an arena of that size for public skating, that, it, that your consumption would be uh, at that space would be anything other than a spectator, was far removed from the, the sort of public perception of the building. It was a more modern building. It was much, much larger. It was celebrated for being, for the the roof that spanned the entire building without any columns creating obstructed views. Um, it had wide, what were perceived to be wide concourses, uh, lounge areas for spectators to relax in uh, after, between periods. Um, it was seen as the epitome of a modern arena. Flash forward 67 and a half years, and the narrative flips that Maple Leaf Gardens is, has has none of what a modern arena should offer offer a city. Uh, so uh, that that very much was the narrative. It's not surprising in some sense, but it um, uh, but it does reflect that kind of uh, changing taste. So that there was debates about how cramped the corridors uh, in Maple Leaf Gardens were. There was endless kind of reminiscences, um, and only a certain portion of the people listening to this uh, will recollect this, but everyone I interviewed who was male uh, remembered this. Uh, the men's washrooms were renowned for the uh, long aluminum trough that they all had. Um, uh, you know, food was kind of boring. Uh, there were no luxury boxes, which are become the staple of uh, modern arenas in the 20th 21st, late 20th, 21st century. So all the, and, uh, and some of the news narratives, media narratives around the closing of Maple Leaf Gardens in 1999 talked about how horrible the gardens was for the spectator. 67 years earlier, all those narratives by the, by the, the equivalent kind of reporters had talked about how grand the arena was. Um, so, uh, so the arena didn't age well in that particular regard, or people's expectations changed, which for me just 
continues to emphasize how central spectators are to this enterprise, to how the customers are. Well, Russell, I want to thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for chatting. My guest today was Russell Fields, the author of A Night at the Gardens, Class, Gender and Respectability in 1930s Toronto. This book was published by the University of Toronto Press in 2023. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca. The best way you can support this podcast is by becoming a subscribing member of the Champlain Society. If you like what you've heard, let your friends know by forwarding this podcast through the social media of your choice. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who work hard to bring to life original documents in Canadian history. We want to thank the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, as well as a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, UBC Press, McGill Queen's University Press, the University of Regina Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Simon Nate. This interview was recorded on May 2nd, 2023. It was produced by Jessica Schmidt and supported by the University of Toronto Press Journal team who also support the Champlain Society.